My guest this week is author and Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, Christian Coates Ulrichson. Christian, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Thank you. The World Cup started last week. But how significant is an event like the World Cup, not just for Qatar and the Gulf, but for the wider Middle East? Well, I think this is the most important and biggest event that has ever taken place, not just in Qatar, not just in the Gulf, but probably in the Middle East as a whole. This is, football is by far the world's most popular sport. This is the biggest global tournament in the world, arguably bigger than the Olympic Games. It takes place over a month, not over two weeks. And the eyes of the world are so firmly fixed on the region in a way that is arguably much more positive. It shows that football and the passions around football can really bring people together. We just saw the excitement across the Arab world when Saudi Arabia beat Argentina mm-hmm. to, to see for ourselves just how important this is and how it can potentially reshape perceptions of the Middle East as a place that isn't as exotic or as different as people might think if they just see the news on a daily basis. Qatar isn't a particularly big country. So how have other countries in the region been preparing for this event? Well, as you say, Qatar is by far the smallest country to host a World Cup. That has caused a degree of controversy and debate, as we've all seen. Mm-hmm. But and it, arguably, there could have been a Gulf-wide bid for the tournament, but that wasn't on the table back in 2008, 2009, when Qatar was bidding for the World Cup. This might be the last World Cup we see that takes place in a single country because it's being expanded to 48 teams for 2026. And we're seeing uh, three countries hosting in 26. Then we're seeing Saudi Arabia potentially bidding with Egypt and Greece for 2030. So this could be the last single country host World Cup. Having said that, uh, we are seeing large numbers of fans uh, basing themselves in, in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi. We're seeing a lot of fans uh, traveling across from Saudi Arabia, driving to Doha. It's a couple of hours drive. So I think we are seeing the uh, involvement of regional states in the tournament in in a significant way in terms of benefiting and tapping into the large number of visitors to the tournament. And in a way that we couldn't have foreseen between 2017 and 2020 when Qatar was uh, placed under a boycott by by three neighboring states, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE being among them. And so the sight of tens of thousands of Saudis uh, driving to Doha or thousands of fans basing themselves in the UAE and flying in for games in in Qatar is a a welcome sign that hopefully the the tension that we saw in the Gulf over the last few years has, uh, has dissipated, at least for now. You're quite right to mention that boycott or blockade that was placed on Qatar. And I think that lasted around three and a half years. It was the countries you just mentioned there, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, but others around the Middle East and Africa as well. And mm. you know, that, that ended in January 2021. And it's an issue you've written a, a book about and much has been written about it. But for listeners who perhaps don't follow Middle Eastern politics too closely, could you just give an overview of what the Qatar blockade was exactly and what impact it had, again, not just on Qatar, but for the, for the wider Gulf? So if you remember, we had the Arab Spring in 2011 and uh, the Qataris were supportive of opposition movements in Egypt, in Libya, in Syria, Al Jazeera, which is a Qatar-based, uh, Qatar-owned media group, were highly uh, influential in uh, airing reports, coverage of the uprisings. There was a perception that the Qataris were more relaxed about uh, the pace and direction of change, toppling authoritarian leaders in North Africa. 
and replacing them with elections which were won by often by Islamist groups. And in response, the Saudis and Emiratis really doubled down on supporting the authoritarian leaderships in trying to maintain the conservative status quo. And we saw that in Egypt, where in 2012, Mohammed Mursi from the Muslim Brotherhood won the election, became president. In 2013, he was toppled and replaced by General Sisi, who is now president. The Qatari supported the Mursi government. The UAE and Saudi Arabia rapidly backed the new Egyptian government with financial and political support. So the backlash from that really shaped the rest of the decade in the 2010s. There was a rift between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, UAE and Bahrain in 2014, where those three countries withdrew their ambassadors. They accused Qatar of supporting regional destabilizing groups. Uh, that was resolved end of 2014. And fast forward to 2017, Donald Trump enters the White House. The Saudis and Emiratis see a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to try and get U.S. support for their attempt to isolate Qatar. It works. Donald Trump initially tweets in support when the Saudis, UAE, Bahrain, and this time Egypt, close their borders, uh, announce a blockade, a political, they cut political, economic, and diplomatic ties with Qatar in June 2017, accused Qatar of supporting terrorism. Donald Trump tweets his support. Initially, the U.S. government then weighs in against Donald Trump, saying, hold on a second, you know, these aren't good guys and bad guys. These are all close U.S. partners in the Middle East. You can't take sides. And so that rumbled on for three and a half years until the end of the Trump presidency. It's no coincidence, I think, that it was finally resolved at the beginning of January 2021 during the transition period from Trump to Biden because the Saudis and Emiratis saw that there was no prospect of succeeding. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a general region-wide reconciliation, that kind of rapprochement uh, with Turkey, with uh, UAE drawing back some of its more confrontational policies. I just think that after a decade of confrontation, there were no clear winners. Um, each party was losing out to some extent. And obviously, with the pandemic, there were more important economic and public health issues to focus on than this kind of geopolitical competition. And whenever an event like the World Cup is held, again, irrespective of where it is in the world, security is always one of the biggest issues for organisers. And you know, as we've just discussed there with the blockade and other incidents and the Arab Spring, you know, the, the Middle East is a particularly volatile region. And again, just if you look back over the, the last year, there's been drone strikes in Abu Dhabi, there's the escalations in Yemen with their civil war, and of course, the recent violent protests in Iran. So just how prepared is Qatar going to be for any potential terror threats or any very serious security situations? Well, and don't forget that Qatar was awarded the World Cup on 2nd of December 2010. And 15 days later, we had Mohamed Bouazizi setting himself on fire in Tunisia, which literally set off the Arab Spring. It was two weeks afterwards. Now, had those had that timeline been reversed, had the Arab Spring been happening before the World Cup vote in 2010, it may be that security considerations would have meant that people wouldn't have gone for Qatar because they would have thought what can happen in the next 12 years to, to destabilize the region. Now it didn't. Now we've got to where we are. The World Cup is happening as we speak. The Qataris have drafted in uh, security personnel from regional states, including Turkey, I think Pakistan. Uh, we've seen Qatari police training with the UK counterparts on de-escalation, on handling crowds, on handling football crowds especially. So we've seen them bringing in a lot of support. We've seen uh, Qatar and the, U and, 
and the RAF in the UK sign a, a joint squadron agreement. So I think they've they realized that they can't do it all themselves, mm. but that they have signed uh, significant long-term security partnerships with countries, not just in the region, but around the world to tap into their own expertise mm. and experience to uh, to ensure a secure World Cup. Now, until now, that seems to have worked. Mm. There obviously are different security challenges, partly because supporters of all 32 countries were basically in one city. It's not like a normal World Cup where you can have England supporters in one city, Germans or Russians in a totally different city, that everyone is mixing together. And actually, until now, we've seen very few reports of any any disturbances. So I think that's a that's a positive sign in itself. And it actually might be that 32 fan, fans from 32 different countries all mixing together could actually bring people together in ways that an average World Cup just couldn't because they're so geographically dispersed. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it has been a great thing that there haven't been any major disturbances or altercations, and hopefully that does continue. But to pick up on your point about the the security deals that's been reached, you've got the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy providing assistance to the Qatari security services. And you know, as well as them, as you, as you point out, there's been US SWAT teams, Turkish riot police, uh, French gendarmes and you know, officers from many other countries as well providing support for this huge policing operation. This is a huge and very significant move for so many countries to provide soldiers and police officers on this scale to another country. So within those deals that you've mentioned before, what might countries like the UK, US, Turkey or France be getting in return for this support? Well, I think it's part of a longer-term security and political partnership with Qatar. I mean, the RAF agreement for the Joint Squadron was significant, partly because it kept open, I think, a, a, at least one airbase in the UK. And uh, the agreements to buy uh, fighter jets has kept open factories. Mm. So, you know, ultimately creates jobs back at home, mm-hmm. creates investment, it creates long-term partnerships. And when you, with the security especially, when you, to buy a long-term package, you buy the support for that package as well. And so from a, from a sort of sending state perspective, it, it creates long-term kind of interconnections that continue to provide provide investment and jobs long after the agreement has been signed. And the World Cup, whilst this is a huge event, it's not the first major international event to take place in the Gulf over the last few years. In just last year, the United Arab Emirates hosted the World Expo in Dubai, an event which we covered and we attended. And the event seemed to have great success for the Emirates. And Dubai is also going to host the United Nations COP28 Climate Change Summit next year. So do you think Expo, the World Cup and then even COP28 have created something of a sea change in the world's and in wider government's attitudes towards the Gulf and the Middle East? Well, I think that change is happening and it's been underway for at least a decade. We've seen a gradual shift in the geopolitical center of gravity away from, quote unquote, the West, you know, Europe and North America. We've seen it moving east. Now, obviously, China has issues right now with its zero COVID policy and uh, post-pandemic or even for them continuing pandemic realities. Mm. We are seeing a shift and obviously the increase in oil and gas prices over the last year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put the Gulf even more centrally into the picture than they were before. And mm. clearly, oil and gas from the Gulf is going to be a significant uh, uh, element of European states' uh, energy security for some time to come. So I think that shift is already happening. The Expo in Dubai, the World Cup, COP20, well, COP27 in Egypt, COP28 in, in the UAE are all parts of this. And obviously, we're seeing now that the Saudis hoping to bid for 2030. 
What I think is the mismatch is the uh, the media coverage, perhaps, of Qatar. The media coverage in Europe, especially, which does seem to be extremely resentful, perhaps, almost orientalist in tone in some respects. Now, many of the issues they raise are legitimate and, of course, should be should be recovered. But I think a lot of the tone is, is almost surprised that an event of this scale should take place in the Middle East. Now, I think that is perhaps because football is so popular, the World Cup is so visible, that this is maybe the first visible manifestation of many people will have of this changing balance of power. You know, it's one thing to set up for a company to move, a, move its operations to, to you know, Asia or to, to somewhere else. It's another thing to have a World Cup in the Middle East. I think this is the most visible sign for people that the old order, as we saw it, where World Cups took place, alternating between Europe and South America, is, is, mm. you know, it's, it's been overtaken. So I just think that's why maybe this has become or attracted such a such a backlash. I'd like to pick up actually on that idea around the, the media coverage, because as you quite rightly point out, Qatar has faced significant criticism from people right across the world in quote unquote the West about its human rights record. And this idea has really cast a shadow over the whole tournament. Seeing as players, media pundits and just visitors generally are arriving in Qatar with for some a large focus on actually calling out these issues for all the hundreds of billions of dollars that the Qataris have put into this event. You know, will Qatar actually be feeling like it just wasn't worth hosting the World Cup in the end? Well, that depends on, I mean, I think it's interesting that obviously the Qataris have invested heavily in nation branding and telling a story about themselves to the world. And that can only take you so far. The rest depends on how the message is received. And obviously, as you say, the message has not been received very positively, especially in European or Northern European uh, media and uh, among public opinion. So telling a story can only go halfway or maybe even less. Now, what I think perhaps is uh, a bubble is that you have this sort of Northern European-centric approach to focusing on these issues, whereas we have the world in Doha, most of the other parts of the world are actually enjoying the tournament, actually having a valuing the tournament. For the Middle East, it's a source of pride that they're having a World Cup in the region. I think for other parts of the world, for Latin America, for Africa, for, for Asia, this is something that is seen as a positive. So I'm, I'm, if the Qataris look at it from a Northern European perspective or a North American perspective, yes, then they, then they could ask, well, is it, has it been worth it? But kind of taking a broader perspective and looking at it from a kind of global point of view, I think that maybe it shines a light on perhaps some of the uh, differences in approach between uh, parts of Northern Europe and, and the rest. And actually, the rest of the world is, I think, probably having a much better time than some of the Northern European journalists uh, or supporters. And in shining a light on those issues, the BBC took the decision for the World Cup opening ceremony to not show it, only put it on iPlayer and on-demand services, and instead present a programme highlighting those issues in Qatar. Now, seeing as opening ceremonies for any event on the kind of scale of a World Cup or an, an Olympic Games, for example, are a really important expression of soft power for the host country. Do you think it was right for the BBC to simply not show this or divert away, say, oh, well, we'll, we'll still show it just on a, a platform that won't get a, as many viewers? Or do you think actually this is going to be seen as a, a diplomatic misstep? Well, it goes back to the whole debate about sports washing, which actually wasn't even a term in 2010 when Qatar was awarded the World Cup. I think the first use 
of the term sports washing came in 2015. And actually it was partly a result of Qatar being awarded the World Cup and a very visible other signs like uh, Manchester City being taken over by Abu Dhabi or Paris Saint-Germain taken over by Qatar and really changing the landscape of European football. And so the BBC may have felt that by showing Qatar's opening ceremony, the showing the message that Qataris wanted to show, that they would be complicit in sports washing. But I actually think that by not showing it, the BBC has um, shown to be disrespectful, not just to Qatar, but to the entire Middle East, the entire Arab world. It's maybe hard to uh, justify, given that just in February this year, the BBC showed all three hours of the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Of course. Now you can argue, and people have been arguing, I think BBC people and other journalists have been saying that actually we were wrong in Russia in 2018 not to focus on uh, Russian issues too closely. Therefore, we're sort of doubling down on Qatar. Now, that might make a sense in terms of the four years since Russia, but what's changed over the nine months since uh, the Winter Olympics? I mean, it mm-hmm. seems there has been a, an editorial decision. Mm-hmm. Now, that, I think, has been seen as showing disrespect. I think it's been part of the general sense of uh, uh, grievance that uh, now both parties, both sides are feeling towards the other, which is, I think, quite unfortunate. And just on sports washing as well, this week we learned that Manchester United is going up for sale. The, the Glazers want to uh, put that on the market for what, what's believed to be between four and five billion dollars. As you quite rightly point out, Manchester City is owned by the Abu Dhabi Royals. Newcastle United was recently purchased by Saudi Arabia. Liverpool's also on, on the market. If it is the case that Middle Eastern royalty and rulers decide to make a bid, and there is one report suggesting that there may even be a joint bid for both United and Liverpool by one of the Dubai Royals as well. So, you know, how much of an impact would that have if that is the case? You know, to have one of the most successful, most famous football clubs in the world, and indeed those around it as well, all owned by the same or even rival royal factions. Well, in terms of sports washing, for me, one of the most clearest, one of the clearest examples of sports washing was in the in the Newcastle case, where Newcastle supporters have effectively become a de facto PR uh, cheerleaders for the Saudi government in so many ways, especially on social media before, during, and after the takeover. And so the Saudi government or the Saudi owners have effectively managed to enlist tens of thousands of passionate Geordies to effectively repeat Saudi talking points when they come under criticism. So that, for me, is a textbook definition of what sports washing can do. Mm. Uh, To some extent, we see the same with city fans in Abu Dhabi. Whenever Abu Dhabi is criticised or whenever city's ownership comes under fire, it would be fascinating to see if uh, anyone from the Gulf uh, goes for the Liverpool or for Manchester United. We shouldn't forget that Dubai has twice in the past, I think, tried to buy Liverpool, mm-hmm. first in the mid-2000s, about 2006 or seven. I think it was the Investment Corporation of Dubai. And then Amanda Staveley, who was then instrumental in the, which was instrumental in the city purchase for Abu Dhabi, and then she played a key role and now is a part owner of Newcastle. But initially, I think she approached uh, the current Liverpool owners, FSG, about five years ago, uh, potentially for a sale. So Dubai has a long history of uh, looking to buy Liverpool, or at least showing interest in Liverpool, or Manchester United. It would certainly be something that would position them, together with Abu Dhabi at City, the Saudis in Newcastle, the Qataris in Paris Saint-Germain, having this sort of prestige asset. Now, it could be that they... I think we're more likely to see either a 
North American investment consortium like we saw with Chelsea or or, or an extremely rich uh, uh, investor from the Gulf. And it'd be fascinating, I think, to see which one because the Premier League seems to be finally balanced between, on the one hand, seeking investment from the US. On the other hand, uh, they've seen the incredibly deep pockets from the Gulf and they've seen how not just City but Newcastle have been transformed. I mean, within a very short space of time. So... It'd be interesting to see which way it goes. Absolutely. And on the opposite side of sports washing, there's been a lot of debate over the, the last few weeks about European team captains wearing these One Love armbands and you know, to show their support for LGBT people and to, to highlight discrimination. But whilst the aim is certainly commendable, gestures like this from players, team staff and even media commentators, they're not going to change the hearts and minds of Qataris with this, are they? My concern is that there's been such a laser-like focus on this issue and such a tone from the West that you have to believe in this. You have you know, this notion that Western values are universal. And they should be. And in an ideal world, they would be. But in the real world, they aren't. And so my concern is that this focus will lead to a, actually make things worse. It will lead to a backlash. I mean, Qatar is a conservative Muslim society. And it could be that there was response to this pressure leads to a backlash that actually makes the condition of LGBTQ people in Qatar and the Gulf and the Middle East more general more difficult. Mm. Um, I think we've seen in the past when sort of states come under Western pressure, that actually does more harm to local campaign groups. For example, uh, women driving in Saudi Arabia, mm. when uh, officials from the US, the UK or others would go to Saudi Arabia and say, you have to let women drive, Actually, it did more harm than good because it kind of pushed a defensive response. And ultimately, the decision was taken for domestic issues by, by Mohammed bin Salman, not in response to Western pressure. So my concern is that there could be a conservative backlash because this is, after all, a conservative Muslim society. Just to move on slightly and look a little bit at Saudi Arabia, because what one of the most interesting things to observe about this World Cup is just doing a bit of people watching and seeing who's been sitting in the VIP boxes. And you know, as, as we discussed earlier about the blockade, you know, it's really significant to see all these Arab rulers sat together with the Qataris as well. But what stood out to me in, in the opening ceremony was that you have the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, sitting next to the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, and they seem to be having a very animated conversation. Now, as, as you quite rightly pointed out earlier, Saudi Arabia has put in a, a joint bid for the 2030 World Cup with Egypt and Greece. But given all the controversy that surrounded this tournament in Qatar, how can Saudi Arabia be allowed to host in eight years' time? Well, and don't forget, this is the second World Cup opening ceremony in a row that Mohammed bin Salman was sitting next to Gianni Infantino because mm-hmm. in 2018, the opening game was Russia against Saudi Arabia. So we had Mohammed bin Salman, Infantino, and Vladimir Putin all uh, sitting around, sitting together. And of course, this time, instead of Vladimir Putin, it was uh, the Emir of Qatar. And I think it made sense for Mohammed bin Salman to go for the opening ceremony to keep uh, keep open that dialogue with 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 Infantino, given the uh, likelihood of a Saudi bid. Now, the Saudis, I think, will be watching very closely for for this World Cup to see how it plays out, mm. to see whether the Qataris just uh, ignore the Western criticism and just deliver a tournament that works for the rest of the world. They will be watching very closely to see what, how far some of the Western criticism goes. We obviously saw the German team protest on the, uh, on the pitch before their, their opening game uh, when they covered their mouths. 
I think they'll be watching very closely to see how the, the how far the criticism of Qatar actually goes. And I think they'll put together their bid. I think they have a very good chance of actually winning, in part because they include team from Africa, a country from Africa and a country from Europe. They're trying to lock in support from three different federations or confederations. It'd be fascinating in 2030 to see if, if it does take place, how different the world is by then and whether the backlash just grows. We've already seen Denmark talking about potentially leaving FIFA and trying to mobilize European support. I mean, we'll have to see if the Qatar World Cup is the final straw for some European countries or if a World Cup in Saudi Arabia is a final straw because it's certainly from a sort of Western point of view, I think the direction of travel is probably not in their mm. not in their favor long term. Yeah, definitely. And even watching just the logistics of having a World Cup in three different continents as well will be equally fascinating to watch. But you know, Saudi Arabia has been a really interesting country to observe over the last few months, particularly as as you mentioned earlier, in the wake of the Russia Ukraine war, you've got so many more countries trying to make these energy deals with Saudi and other Gulf states. But even the, the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, he's recently been appointed the Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia, a position traditionally reserved for the king. And mm. just this week, he's also been given legal immunity by President Biden over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So are we now starting to see Saudi Arabia return to a prominent place on the world stage after being a pariah over the last few years? Well, I think we are. And don't forget also that Mohammed Salman went to Greece and then to France over the summer. He was... Uh... It was his first trip into the European Union since uh, since 2018, since the death, of, since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and so it seems that the Saudis are testing the waters in terms of seeing where he can travel to without facing potential uh, legal jeopardy. And obviously, as you say, the, uh, the decision to grant him immunity in the U.S., which was because he was named prime minister and now is entitled to sovereign immunity, which was a a decision that was cynically and I think probably rightly seen as being taken just for that reason. I think we are seeing the Saudis and other Gulf states becoming much more proactive, much more vocal. And actually, I think that goes back to a lot of the anger and frustration that people in the Gulf are feeling at this kind of European kind of almost condescension towards them having the World Cup. That They see energy ministers, economy ministers from across Europe making a steady stream of visits to the Gulf to try and uh, secure energy deals and then belittling them and criticizing them. In, and I think the, the recent German uh, uh, interior minister had to apologize in public for comments she'd made about Qatar, and partly because Germany is seeking, obviously, to wean itself mm -hmm. off Russian gas. You know, this puts the Gulf in a very strong geopolitical position, mm -hmm. which may not last, obviously, with the energy transition or with climate policies, if longer term that creates a real shift in demand for, for fossil fuels but certainly for the moment the gulf is much more central and i think we will see the saudis and mohammed salman playing a much bigger more vocal and assertive role in regional international affairs now the question then is have they really learned some of the lessons from the missteps of the 2015 to 2018 period which saw not just the killing of khashoggi but also the war in Yemen, uh, the, the blockade of Qatar, the kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister. You know, there are a whole series of missteps when the Saudis were kind of almost swaggering around in 2016-17. I think it would be interesting to see whether Mohammed bin Salman re-engages internationally, but in a more cautious, pragmatic, 
even more mature manner. Just to finish then, looking at what's taken place so far, looking at the tournament itself, what do you think is going to be the legacy of this World Cup? Well, I think the legacy hopefully will be the uh, fact that it, it is it's actually a World Cup. It's a World Cup for people from Asia, from Africa, from the Middle East. It's finally breaking out of that cocoon of European South American dominance. Now, we've obviously had tournaments in Japan and South Korea and 2002 and South Africa 2010. So this is a World Cup for the Middle East, which hopefully can also bring people together in ways that showcase the region as something positive, something passionate about football, uh, young society just as plugged in as everyone else around the world, changing the focus away from conflict, from terrorism, from extremism, and hopefully changing the way people think about the Gulf by bringing the Gulf more visibly into, into how people think about the world. So that, if it happens, could be a positive legacy. The negative legacy could be the, the flip side, that the relentless focus on, on migrant workers, which is legitimate but still relentless, could change how people think of the Middle East in a negative sense. And that could also spur a conservative backlash in the region against engaging globally. So we'll have to see which way it goes. And finally, we've focused on the politics of this, but who's going to win the World Cup? <laughs> well, Spain looked very good against Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Brazil looked pretty good last uh, yeah, well, on Saturday, on, on Thursday against um, against Serbia. Of course, my hope is that England will win, and of mm-hmm. course, they've started very well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's open. I would say Brazil or Spain, if England won it, I suspect that a lot of people will cast aside their. Uh, concerns about Qatar as a host country and fondly remember that as the uh, the place where England won the World Cup. So we'll have to wait and see. Well, let's see if it does come home. Christian Coates-Solvichson, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.